Sheltering Arms, A Legacy of Caring is a new book featuring photo photographs and stories from every era of the organization's rich history. Published in honor of Sheltering Arms' 125th anniversary, the book chronicles the healthcare institution's growth from humble beginnings in a donated house in downtown Richmond to a nationally recognized physical rehabilitation leader, which is a position it holds today. Joining us for this talk is someone who has been an ardent supporter of Sheltering Arms for decades. Anne Rutherford Lauer earned her BA in political science from Mount Holyoke and landed her first job at the Institute of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation in New York City while her husband was in medical school. She and her husband came to Richmond in 1965. Mrs. Lauer was first introduced to Sheltering Arms when her children were asked to bring canned goods to school for a Thanksgiving food drive in support of the hospital. When her youngest started kindergarten, a friend urged her to become involved with the healthcare organization, beginning a decades-long dedication to Sheltering Arms. Ms. Lauer joined Sheltering Arms as a member of the Board of Managers in 1971. Since that time, she has served as the Chairman of Admissions, a member of the Long Range Planning Committee, a member of the Women's Council, a member of the Board of Directors, the first female president board of the directors, and as a patient representative. In 1989, Ms. Lauer wrote a detailed centennial history of the organization, Sheltering Arms Hospital, a centennial history, and she has served as the Sheltering Arms archivist since that time. The unique combination of her formal historical knowledge and her personal experiences and passion for Sheltering Arms made her an invaluable resource during the production of this book in honor of the healthcare institution's 125th anniversary. And I should say there will be a book signing immediately after the lecture up at the museum shop. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Ann Lauer. Morning. No, it's already afternoon. <laughs> Sheltering Arms and I are very happy to be here with you today to celebrate this 125th anniversary of an old and noble Richmond hospital. During this year of the 125th, as Paul told you, um, the communications department has produced this lovely picture book which tells the story of Sheltering Arms in the voices of the people who served there and the voices of patients. The loving community of Richmond has supported Sheltering Arms for all these 125 years. The history of Sheltering Arms is the story of an inspiring leadership, beginning with Rebecca Peterkin, and the response to this leadership by the community of Richmond. It's always been a caring community. Rebecca was the daughter of the rector of St. James's Episcopal Church, then located in Jackson Ward. She knew the suffering of the people in her father's parish. She walked those streets, she visited those people, and she had a dream, a dream of wanting to help the poorest of them, the weakest of them, the poor, the injured, the ill, 
and help them to regain their health and perhaps their jobs and their self-respect. Rebecca enlisted the help of her sewing circle at St. James's to become the first Richmond chapter of the King's Daughters. Their task was to celebrate, was to establish a hospital for those in need of free care in downtown Richmond. Notice the King's Daughters pin that's on Miss Peterson's uh, dress. Then Rebecca approached a friend of hers, Dr. Edwin Booth of Carter's Grove, who owned an old boarding house on North 14th. Imagine if you stood behind the governor's mansion and looked east down the hill. There in a very crowded neighborhood stood the Clifton House. It was in poor condition, to say the least, and required much work to prepare it to become a hospital. The women of the central circle of the King's Daughters begged funds and supplies from friends to outfit the hospital, which they named Sheltering Arms. It took their hard work to make the building ready to open on February 13, 1889, 125 years ago. For the first two years, Dr. Moses Hoag and one nurse took care of somewhere from six to 16 patients per day at the cost of 67 cents a day. Dr. Hoag was a member of the faculty of the University College of Medicine, now MCV, and he volunteered at Sheltering Arms until his death in 1920. By volunteering his services, he established a tradition of physicians and surgeons who offered their care free of charge to patients of Sheltering Arms. Doctors loved this free hospital and helped it in other ways too. They, they, first of all, they always brought their own instruments because Shelter Arms didn't have any instruments in the OR. But they did other things too. They painted the operating room. They painted the front trim of the hospital. They tidied up the grounds. It was, it was a caring uh, atmosphere. In, 19, in 1891, tragedy struck. Rebecca Peterkin died. You can imagine the consternation that this death did to disrupt this early group of people working on the hospital. Her obituary in the Richmond Dispatch read, the world is in a better, the world is better for the life of Rebecca Peterkin. There can be no grander tribute than this. There could be no sure claim to blissful immortality. Few lives have ever been more earnestly devoted to ministrations of good than that which has just ended. The greatest pleasure of her life found origin in the joy and comfort she brought to others. How disruptive this was to the new venture. Its future was definitely uncertain. What would happen to the young free hospital? Thanks to a group of medical school doctors convened by Dr. Hunter McGuire, 
in the center with a circle. Uh, money was raised to buy a larger building for sheltering arms, and they found the William Grant Mansion on East Clay Street between 10th and 11th. So the small hospital moved up the hill to an area north of Broad, which already housed a number of public institutions. By 1894, Sheltering Arms had settled into its new location. It was governed by a ladies' board of managers ah, who ran the daily operation of the hospital. A men's board of leading citizens oversaw the finances. Now, Rebecca had first interested Miss Frances Branch Scott, the central character in that picture, to who interested her in charitable work. And Miss Scott had agreed to work with the financial committee, uh, which had been set up to raise funds for the hospital. She was a member of the original hospital board and remained the leader until her death in 1937. This lady knew how to stretch a dollar. Although generous by nature, Miss Scott was strictly frugal in the management of sheltering arms. And with good reason, for the treasurer, who sits to her left there, there, to the treasurer, Mrs. George T. King, had spent her life, spent her life raising money to pay the hospital bills and wringing the hearts of the financiers on Main Street. As a young woman, Mrs. King had been actively involved in the first executive board of the hospital. And as its treasurer, she now carried out her duties with loving devotion and steadfast attention to detail until her death in 1938. In 1910, Miss Scott, then president of the board, recognized the need for a sheltering arms auxiliary, and thus the Florence Nightingale Circle was formed. Their principal objective was to take care of the nurses. It was the well-being of the nurses that they really wanted to help. For decades, almost nine, they raised money to provide furnished living quarters for the nurses, at first on the third floor of the Grant House, later at the Scott residence next door, and finally at a house on Palmyra Avenue. Two of the well-known fundraising projects of this new organization were the Trey Boy Dance Reviews, we're gonna see that picture later, and the Nightingale Fashion Show Luncheons at Tallheimer's that Betty Botter helped with. I'm sure there are many of us sitting here today who attended at least one of those annual uh, events. The community. People in and around Richmond, farmers, hunters, um, merchants, former patients, helped the new hospital by supplying meat and produce, materials and supplies. Support groups held events to raise money. Amazing. The, here we have St. Catherine's girls collecting canned goods. They donated blood. The Boy Scouts helped collect canned goods. They had all, these children held all these food drives. They loved to do that. This was always a Thanksgiving event in the, in the schools, public and private. 
the junior, uh, these, this is a sorority, picture of some sorority girls who were helping with the donation canisters that were placed all over town. Uh, these are supplies coming into the hospital from many, many different people, sometimes groups, sometimes individuals. I'm waiting to see what comes next. Ah, there's the Trey Boy Dash Review. Uh, that was a yearly event for many, many years, given in, uh, to raise money. Now, this is a picture of the King's Daughters, older picture. That is Mrs. McElroy, the second from the left. Whoops. And the others are the more contemporary um, King's Daughters. And finally, to the, to the junior board. They went out to the markets, down to the 7th Street Market on Saturday afternoons and collected produce that couldn't be held over till Monday and takes, took the produce to the kitchen door of Sheltering Arms. And of course, in the 50s, they produced the elegant Val du Bois, that most beautiful of parties. At a time when it wasn't customary for women to go to work, the role of volunteers at Sheltering Arms was invaluable. It gave them a sense of purpose. And nursing was gaining recognition as a relatively new profession. The first nursing school in the United States was founded in 1877, not long before Sheltering Arms opened. And the Sheltering Arms nurses worked long hours in the OR and on the ward. In later years, my friend Dickie Newsom said to me, you know, the OR was on the third floor, and it had this fantastic view of the countryside out to the east. There were three very large windows, and they got opened for fresh air, but they also opened the world to flies because there were no screens on the windows then. A new era began after World War I. Two dynamic nurses came on the scene at Clay Street. Miss Natalie Hill became superintendent, and Miss Hazel, I'm sorry, Miss Natalie Curtis became superintendent, and Miss Hazel Hill became the assistant superintendent. They were strong-minded nurses who were trained in Philadelphia. They succeeded in raising the standard of care, in seeing that sheltering arms gained state accreditation, and in establishing a nursing school. Thus began sheltering arms' reputation for its dedicated nurses who gave their compassionate care of the highest quality. Miss Curtis, especially, was a very tough administrator. Dr. Margaret Nolting, from a well-to-do family on Fifth Street, was one of the first females in Virginia to graduate from a four-year medical school. As a matter of fact, she and Dr. Charlie Caravati were in the same class of 1922 from MCV. Uh, Dr. Nolting interned at Children Arms and in 1924 became the medical director, a position she held without pay until she retired in 1949. Other outstanding staff were head nurse, Miss Laura Vitor, who had trained in nursing and pharmacology at Johns Hopkins, and Mr. Foster, uh, in Miss Vitor's picture, she is sorting drugs that have been brought in by doctors, and that was the source of a great deal <laughs> of the so-called pharmacy at Children Arms. 
Uh, the other person I wanted to tell you about was Mr. Foster Berry, who went above and beyond his duties to do extra care for the patients. He was heard often to say, you have to treat them gentle. He stayed at night to do maintenance chores. He sometimes wheeled patients home who lived nearby. And he skinned, door, he skinned deer when it was occasionally brought to the back door and donated to the hospital. When it became apparent, however, that the old Grant House had outlived its function as a general hospital, the leadership made the difficult decision to move to Northside at Palmyra Avenue and build a modern 40-bed facility, well-equipped and temperature-controlled. And it was attached to the new open-staffed Richmond Memorial Hospital. No more babies, no children, and no surgeries were done at Shelter Arms anymore. All these services were contracted out to other hospitals which accepted the payment parameters of sheltering arms. During the first 15 years at Palmyra, sheltering arms was an acute care general hospital giving care to patients in need as it continues to do today. Gradually, the need for free care declined with the advent of Medicare in 1965 and Medicaid in 1970. Under these national health plans, doctors and hospitals were reimbursed, and that affected the census for free patients at sheltering arms. And as a result of this downward trend, the sheltering arms boards began a process which would take five years, six years, studying the unmet needs, health needs, of Central Virginia. With due diligence, the boards considered five options with the help of experts and with field trips to renowned rehab facilities. Subsequently, a decision was made to convert sheltering arms to rehabilitation. Without assurance that sheltering arms would be reimbursed, the boards took a leap of faith to convert sheltering arms to physical medicine and rehabilitation for adults to help people who were disabled by injury and illness to regain their lives. In January of 1981, Sheltering Arms opened its doors to this new service for those who needed free care and for those who could pay for it. As Sheltering Arms grew in this service for the community, it received a positive response from groups like the DuPont 3000 Day Safety Club, who actively helped with events and fundraising. The way they did it in the shop at DuPont was instead of having a Christmas party, they would take that money and make, the do make a donation, often in cash, to Sheltering Arms. And some of their reps would come with their hard hats full of cash to the hospital before Christmas and dump those hard hats with all that money on Mrs. Sterling's table. It was amazing. And they have been to this day very, very enthusiastic backers of Sheltering Arms. By 1998, Sheltering Arms upgraded with a new facility in Mechanicsville, where it moved in affiliation with Richmond Memorial. And again, as needs became apparent for outpatient locations, Sheltering Arms expanded with 10 satellites and a floor 
at St. Francis Hospital in Midlothian. Challenged by complex neurological conditions such as strokes, spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, MS, Parkinsonism, Sheldon Arms therapists began to use newer methods of treatment. Much was being learned about the plasticity of the brain. It's it's the brain's amazing ability to compensate for injury using old and new connections, pathways, to recover lost functions. For example, when someone has had a stroke. The staff was trained in the use, as we move into the technology age, the staff was trained in the use of iWalk, which is a gait retraining program that utilized advanced technologies, including robotic-assisted therapies and similar therapy for the upper body. That program is called iReach, shown here, and for speech improvement with a program called iConnect. These exciting innovations in rehab could not even have been imagined when we opened in 1981 when Sheldon Arms began rehabilitation. Unlike the traditional hospital model of discharging a patient, Sheltering Arms offers services out in the community with day programs, um, recreational therapy, and Club Rec. Club Rec is in a building not far from here at the corner of Shepherd and Broad, a place where people can exercise, receive therapy, learn adaptive leisure activities like this young lady learning to play golf, the lady in the red shirt. These services, or they even come just to socialize, these services are are not reimbursable to sheltering arms. This is one of the ways that sheltering arms returns much to the community. Sheltering Arms has experienced many changes since the doors opened in 1889. The acute care hospital, run by volunteers in the 19th century, has evolved into a nationally recognized leader in physical rehabilitation. Many, many dedicated individuals from all walks of life have contributed to this hospital over the years. I believe that the hand of God rested on these workers in the vineyard. Thank you for your attention. When did Sheltering Arms begin to integrate its services and its service staff. We saw Mr. Foster Berry, but uh, the um, uh, physicians and nurses. When, when Sheltering Arms accepted Hilburton funds from the national government to um, build the hospital on Palmyra, then we integrated for everyone.
Could you please comment on uh, the connection with the uh, King's Daughters uh, in the early days? I understand there's that's still an active hospital organization down in uh, Virginia Beach or Norfolk. It's a wonderful organization. It actually is international. Uh, and Norfolk happens to have a good many circles still existing. At one time, when the beginning hospital began, uh, they formed, there were three chapters here, and they formed what they called the Central Circle. And they were uh, extremely important in helping the hospital um, both prepare to go into the Grant House, and they have over the years been very, very faithful fundraisers, doing many different things, card parties, raffles, go to the horse races. Um, and they are, we, had, we still have one circle here in Richmond of devoted members of the Shelfley Arms family. Yes, I wondered if by any chance you had uh, any connections with and cooperation with the Burke Rehabilitation Center that's in New York City. You said you were with, New with the re rehab center in New York at one time. Yes, I, I was with IPNR, which is down on 34th Street in the East River. That was Dr. Howard Rusk's oh, yes, Dr. rehab Rusk, center. Yeah. But I don't reckon, Burke was out in uh, White Plains, I yes, think. Yes, it was. Yeah, my mother was a volunteer there in the late 40s. Let's see, Dr. Rusk had been in the, in the, arm, in the Air Force during the war, uh -huh. and he was dealing with basically flyers coming back from U the European theater, and it gave him the notion that something had to be done with these men to help them recover, both to get back in their planes and also to be able to go on and lead their lives. And the, what happened out in, in and the Burke Center out in, it's called Mobility for a while, out in the White Plains. And they, that was uh, an outpatient facility where the one in town on 34th Street was the inpatient connected with NYU. I think, didn't, uh, didn't Dr. Rusk build a new hospital? Well, uh, it has been. When, when I worked there, we called it a shoebox, and the parking lot was dirt. <laughs> 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 and it was a two-story, long, thin building. Uh, but, of course, rehab just mushroomed. Yeah. The need for rehab just mushroomed. And so now they have a, a fine new big building, and it's still connected with NYU, just above Bellevue. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, um, this isn't a question. I just want to thank you for your presentation. And also, people may not know that sheltering arms has uh, helps with post-polio for people that had polio and then get post-polio as adults. And it's very limited number of places in the United States that do that. And we're just extremely appreciative for that feature. I'm very happy you mentioned that. Because one of the dearest people to all of us at Sheltering Arms is Nancy Barrett, who exper experienced polio in the early 40s. And she was a good example of, shall I say, overcoming her disability. But in another 30 or 35 years, those muscles that have been working so hard in her other leg were beginning to deteriorate. And this post-polio um, treatment plan was a godsend. And I heard that, I know Dr. Jane Wooten told me that, that she had patients that benefited very much from that too.
Jennifer, what sources does Sheltering Arms receive its operating uh, expenses today, and are there any uh, paid uh, staff at Sheltering Arms, or, or is it all volunteered by the medical uh, Let me answer facility? the end of the question, and then I'll refer to Mac McElroy, who's president of the Sheltering Arms Foundation. Um, when we moved from Clay Street to Palmyra, we actually only had three paid employees. Nancy Barrett was the administrative secretary, Helen Sterling was the financial secretary, and M Mrs. Um, Hubie was the nurse liaison between our staff and Richmond Memorial. Um, when we went into rehabilitation, that everything changed. I mean, we had a staff of physiatrists and the nurses went back to school to be trained to be uh, therapy, uh, rehab therapy nurses and um, our staff enlarged. We now have a staff of f f 550, all paid. <laughs> but I'd like I'd like Mac McElroy to speak to that question about the um, operating costs. Thank you, and I just want to thank Ann for just a fabulous history of our remarkable organization, and recognize our board chair Tricia Cushney, who's here as well. Um, but to answer the question, uh, we are like really any other hospital these days. We receive reimbursement from Medicare, Medicaid, and then private payors such as Anthem, Aetna, Coventry, firms of that nature. Um, the split is roughly 65% uh, or so is Medicare. Um, I'm probably off a little bit, but maybe 20 to 25% uh, private, excuse me, um, private payors, the Aetnas and the um, and the Anthems of the world, and then the remainder is Medicaid. And of course, as Anne mentioned very eloquently, we still provide financial assistance to those who kind of fall through the cracks and need our services. That's primarily for inpatient operations, and then for outpatient operations, the payor mix is a little different, including some who come to us um, on a private pay pace basis for, um, for therapy. Thanks, Ann. You mentioned the satellite locations. Do they vary by what they offer or by, lo I mean, how do people choose which one they go to or are referred to? One of them is specifically for neurological problems, and only at one of them do we have a pool over in Bonaire. I hope I'm telling this right, but the rest of them um, will take any kind of patient, any kind of rehab patient. Am I correct down here? And then we have, um, Actually, three centers that where we do, we treat neuro neurologically impaired patients. So at both of our hospitals as well as at our Bonaire location. And our other um, facilities are primarily ortho rehab. So knees, hips, joints, any kind of, um, any sort of an impairment of that nature. Oh yeah, that's, that's a very good point that Max just brought up. Um, recently, we launched a concussion care program. We found that was an unmet need in the community, and as Ann pointed out, that's 
always been our mission to, to meet the needs of the Richmond community. And so we launched a program where we offer baseline testing as well as post-testing and treatment and rehabilitation. So for all ages. Um, well, and for about from adolescence, pre-puberty on up. The person speaking to you is Stephanie Selma, and she's the director of marketing and communications. Um, I wanted to, I don't know whether I'm supposed to say that in, or not. Um, no, pass it. <laughs> no, that's all right. But the, the way one comes to sheltering arms is to be referred by your doctor, one kind of your doctor. And at that time, when, when uh, one of the transition nurses goes to visit the patient, there is determined to what uh, outpatient facility you might go to might be appropriate. They were really placed around in different locations to make it more convenient for people to reach them on an outpatient basis. Yes, it's clear, it seems to me, that the um, move in the mid-1960s was a fairly significant transitional moment for the hospital. And it took place in the context of what we all know was a very important changing period in U.S. history financial, sociological, all kinds of ways. There must have been uh, considerable turmoil and strategic thinking, how to adapt to the changes. Could you just elaborate a little bit on that? It would seem to me that's an important moment. It'd be nice to hear a little bit more about that. It, it was very important for two reasons, both health reasons and social civil rights reasons. And um, it was traumatic because it had, had a long history there on Clay Street and people were devoted to the place as well as to the people who were working there. So it, uh, it was, let's see how to say this. It was, Richmond Memorial was selected as the hospital to affiliate with because we would need basic sciences um, to support our rehab care, which was really a tertiary care. We needed the basics there, urology and things like that. It was, it was selected because it was the only open-staffed hospital in Richmond at the time. And this was important to us. And of course, Richmond Memorial had different races on their staff as we did too. Does that answer your question? Could you comment on the disposition and current status of the original sheltering arms buildings or later buildings. I don't know whether they're still there or not. I'd be glad to comment, but anybody else has more information, just speak up. Um, the original uh, William Grant house was a standalone house. In the history of sheltering arms, there was um, a transitional building of three floors that went between that house and the, the Benjamin Watkins house on the corner which Mr. Frederick Scott gave in honor of his sister, and that's what we called uh, the Scott residence. The in-between the in part I don't think exists anymore. It has been torn down. Um, the old hospital on Clay Street is now the home of the Department of Hospital and Health Administration at MCV. And it's at that home that we are going to have an interpretive reenactment on September the 20th which we invite you all to come to from one to four on a Saturday afternoon. 
and we will try to make you see what it was like back in the 1890s. But we'd, we, welcome, we welcome your visitation. This is not really a question, but it's a comment about Miss Matthew Turner and the story of Turner and the influence they had. Because if you don't have it, they didn't get any earlier. As a single woman, she was able to adopt which was a very unusual thing back in the 30s. And she and her sister raised that child. I believe the story is that the mother of that child was a hospital patient and she died. And Miss, Miss Curtis decided that, well, she'd take that on too. And she adopted Tommy then when he was very young. And he practically lived in the hospital. He lived, he lived there for a number of years. And yeah. she contacted some people that assisted her and she got uh, a legal adoption for that boy mm -hmm. as a single female. I believe he went on it into the healthcare industry himself. He went to school later and um, at MCV and graduated from the very, in the very building in which he had been living in when he was younger. And for those of you who might know, that school, how, so our building houses the MHA and PhD program in health administration. And for those of you who know Marilyn Tavener, who is now head of CMS. Um, in Washington. In Washington, she actually received her master's degree in health administration in that building as well. Speaking of that building, that was the era when we had a lot of children born there. And Lucy Dabney told me yesterday that, that I should tell you that people who were born in the hospital were really proud of it. They were not ashamed of being born in a, in a charity hospital. And we have received messages donations and so forth from up until very recently. Uh, even she, she remembered uh, somebody from Switzerland saying he had been born there 65 years earlier and he just wanted to send a check. But the Fincastles, I think the Fincastle story is interesting. Who wants to tell that? Mac was telling it. You're on. great testimony to some of our colleagues that work at the hospital, including um, a woman at the registration desk in Hanover, but she was approached by a gentleman who um, asked her if, if there was some history of, of the hospital available, and of course we immediately referred him to Ann Lauer's book, and also a copy of the 125th commemorative book that you, you've seen here today. Um, Lisa um, continued to, to speak with this man, went out to visit him, learned that he was actually born in our hospital, and after um, a lengthy conversation with Lisa, revealed that um, he and his wife wanted to recognize Sheltering Arms Hospital in their will. And um, we were really touched by that, um, by that, and that occurred just, um, just a couple of weeks ago. So 
Um, if anybody was born in Sheltering Arms Hospital, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to leave us in your will, but we, we would love to hear about it. And um, we actually have an employee, Barbara Botkin, who was born in our hospital, and Anne's exactly right. There is a great deal of pride um, amongst those folks that were born there. Post polio. Thank you for that testimony. Very good. <laughs> 